Welcome to the High Praises Church Podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. Now, here's student pastor Evan Sastar. So excited to be in God's house. So excited to bring the word of God today. If you don't know, my name is Pastor Evan. I am uh, the youth pastor here for for one more week. I know for uh, those of you who were here last Sunday, you heard the announcement that um, Elizabeth and I were going to be in August. We're going to be moving down to Charleston for a ministry assignment there. And some of you were like, finally, we got rid of them. And I'm back again. Couldn't get rid of me, Daddy. I'm just messing with you. I'm so excited to be able to preach the Word of God today. I'm thankful to Dad, to Pastor Chris, uh, for giving me that opportunity. And I'm grateful uh, to see what the Lord wants to do in the house of God today. Hey, before we dive into the text, I know I usually start my sermons with some kind of silly illustration or um, something from my life or something like that. But can I just give you a short history lesson today? Would that be okay? And band, you guys are good. I'm sorry. (laughs) You guys are doing a great job. (laughs) Come on, give the band a hand. (laughs) Aren't they wonderful? Thank you so much. Who in here has heard of the name Alexander the Great? I think we've all probably heard of Alexander the Great. If you don't know, um, he lived around the late 300s BC, and he was great because he built an amazing empire, the Greek empire. And so he was a young guy, but he built an amazing kingdom. I think at one point he had 40,000 soldiers He went to battle and he conquered the Persian Empire. He conquered something like 70 city-states. I mean, he was absolutely dominant. More than that is he would go in and he would conquer territories and then he would have something called Hellenization, which is where he made everything Greek. So not only did he physically conquer these lands and rule over them, he conquered their cultures as well. I mean, this man was dominant. I think at one point his empire spanned from Europe and into Asia like 2 million square miles, I read at some point. I mean, this man's kingdom was absolutely massive. And the way that he did it was through brute force and power. He got a massive army, got swords and shields and spears. He was a brilliant military mind and he mowed down everyone. But it's interesting though that as a, as a young guy in his 30s, he ended up developing, I believe, typhoid uh, fever and died. And his massive kingdom that he built was split into three and then eventually it crumbled to pieces and it doesn't exist anymore. You know, as I think about the life of Alexander the Great, I realize it can actually teach us something about our relationship to God and ultimately about the kingdom of God. And I mean that in two ways. The first is this. If we are all honest with each other, we all deep down want to build our own kingdom. It is our sinful desire. We want to be the Lord of our lives do our own thing, go our own way, and trust that our decisions, fulfilling our desires, meeting our needs, and the way we set out will ultimately satisfy us. And so we think if I can get enough money or fame or praise or the perfect family or enough pleasure, if I can just get enough college game days in my life, I will be satisfied, and that is tempting. But the truth is this. 
is just like Alexander the Great. You could spend your whole life building your own kingdom, but someday it will come to an end. Your kingdom is not good enough. But let me tell you about something else. Jesus Christ came to establish his own kingdom and he's inviting you into it, but his kingdom is different. Alexander the Great built his kingdom on brute force and strength and power and domination. But Jesus builds his kingdom not on taking life, but by giving his own life and laying it down for the life of the world. And so I have a simple question for you this morning. Are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to take your crown and cast it down at the feet of Jesus that you may enter into his kingdom and have life forever? So that's why today we're looking at John chapter 18. So if you would, would you stand this morning in honor of God's word? John chapter 18, and we are beginning, I believe, in verse 28. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world. That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Can we do something a little interesting before we sit down today? In our middle school ministry, every time we read the Bible, whoever's reading the Bible says, the word of the Lord. And all the middle schoolers shout back, thanks be to God. You want to have some fun today? The word of the Lord? Thanks be to God. Come on, have a seat. 
The reason we do that is uh, not just to have fun or, you know, just to do something silly, but we want to teach our students that when we open up this book, it's not a fantasy book and it's not just a history book, but we are opening up the word of the Lord and we thank God and we praise him for his holy word. Amen. Amen. That's why we do that. So here's what's going on in John chapter 18. Um, Jesus has been arrested. Um, the, the Jewish uh, crowd has come and got him. Judas has betrayed him. He's already seen the Jewish high priest and the Sanhedrin, and they have decided that Jesus is guilty and he needs to be put to death. And so they bring him to the Roman governor there, Pontius Pilate. And so they show up and they're like, hey, we need to try this guy. And Pontius is like, all right. What did he do? And they were like, bro, trust us. We wouldn't bring him here if he wasn't a sinner, right? Which is like not the greatest plan. But they did elaborate eventually. And he's like, okay, um, why don't you just try him according to your law? And they're like, well, he deserves to be put to death. And we are legally not allowed to put him to death. And so we really need you to do it. And so Pontius brings him back into the praetorium, the headquarters, and he starts questioning Jesus. And he says to them this very simple phrase. This is uh, what the, the Jews must have accused him of. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is like, all right, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this? Jesus knew somewhere deep down, Pontius knew that Jesus was different that he was kingly, he was royal in some way, though he couldn't figure it out. And Pilate said, look, am I a Jew? I, I, this is foreign to me. I, like, I have no idea about all of this. All I know is your chief priest and your nation has handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus goes back and he actually answers the first question. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Are you a king? Implicitly, yes. But my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You see Pontius Pilate as a Roman governor, his primary concern in this scenario is if Jesus is a real king, seeking after a real kingdom with like land and economies and authority and rulership and all of this, then I've got to stamp this out. We've got to maintain the strength of the empire. If he is just a regular old king, he deserves to die. And Jesus disarms him immediately. I am a king, but listen to me. My kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is of a different order. It is a different kind of kingdom with different purposes and different goals. Jesus is a man, but remember, he's the God man. And long before he became a man, he is still God. And he came to preach the kingdom of heaven. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preaches that the kingdom is invisible. It is in the midst of you. The kingdom of heaven is not principally concerned with land and economy and power and armies. It's concerned about taking men out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life and saving them from their sins. Don't you understand, Pontius, if this was a normal old kingdom, my servants would fight 
I would have an army, but I came to you willingly. And in fact, if we jump back to John 18, we realize that what Jesus is actually saying is not only am I not fighting, I'm actually intentionally sacrificing my life for the sake of the kingdom. Because when they're in the garden, Judas and the boys roll up and they're coming to take Jesus, but the apostle Peter doesn't get it yet. He's still thinking like the world. And so he says, all right, it's game time. And he pulls out a sword and then there's a servant there named Malchus. And we're just assuming he's like, all right, I'll kill Malchus first. Like, let's go. And he swings the sword and he's got terrible aim and he ends up just chopping his ear off. (laughs) Poor guy. And Jesus looks at him. He's like, Peter, put the sword away. Have I not come to drink the cup of my father's wrath? My kingdom is not of this world because where Rome says might is right, I say I give my life for the sake of the world. The kingdom is built on death to self and sacrifice. But Jesus has answered in the negative. Now he's getting ready to answer in the positive. Pilate therefore said to him, verse 37, are you a king then? Like, I kind of want a straight answer. And Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. Jesus knows that Pilate knows deep down he's a king. Then Jesus says this, for this cause I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world. Notice the language. He's born and he has come into the world, which means he existed before he came into the world. He was sent for he's God. Why? That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What is the kingdom prerogative? It's not battles, it's not land, it's not money, it's not power, it's not whatever an earthly king and an earthly kingdom is after. Jesus is not planning to take the sword and coerce the nations into following him at the threat of death. What is his game plan for the kingdom? To testify to the truth. And all those who are of the truth will listen to me. Jesus's battle plan is to speak life into death, light into darkness, truth into deception, and say, whosoever will, come and follow me. What does John say earlier? He records Jesus saying this, when I am high and lifted up, I will not force all men to come to me, not threaten all men to come to me, I will draw all men unto me. What is the foundation of the kingdom that Jesus reveals in this crucial moment in his life? The kingdom is built on death to self and it's built on surrounding myself with the truth. Death to self and truth. And I think the best way that I can illustrate this is, once again, not with a funny story. I think the best thing we can do is is have another history lesson. If we can take a brisk walk through the history of the early church, we can see the church and the kingdom have always been built on these two principles. So you guys up for another history lesson? Is this cool? 
When we look at the book of Acts, what's going on? The apostle Peter and the crew are preaching truth, but then they are persecuted for their faith. They're forced to die to themselves. The Jewish folks call them in again and they beat their backs. And then what do they do? They leave. They go back to the church. They rejoice that they've been able to be persecuted for Jesus. They pray for courage to do what? Preach the truth and the Holy Spirit falls in a mighty way. And what happens? The church grows. We can look at the life of Paul. Paul did not have it easy. This man was imprisoned all the time. He was stoned nearly to death. His preaching of the truth caused a literal riot in one city. He had enemies after enemies. He was shipwrecked multiple times and eventually he died for his faith. His life was one characterized by death to self and an obsession with the truth. And you wanna know what happened? The church grew. We can look at the early history of the church. And the church went through some terrible stuff, some horrible persecutions. We can think about the, the Diocletian persecution. They would tie Christians on light poles and set them on fire to basically say, like, you're, you're our light for this evening. They would clothe Christians in blood and raw meat and watch as wild animals eat them alive for their faith. They would bring them in coliseums and have lions eat them in front of cheering crowds. That was their form of entertainment. But this early church father named Tertullian, writing in the early third century, had this great quote as he's observing all of this happening. He says this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you kill us, the more we grow. Keep killing us, baby. We're just gonna keep bearing fruit. And you know what happens? The church grew. But then the church reached a seminal moment, and this is so important for connecting where you and I are today. Eventually, by God's grace, the Christian faith reached the tippy top of the Roman Empire, and Emperor Constantine converted to the faith. And I believe that this was an act of God's grace. And so now it was illegal to persecute Christians. Christianity was a legal religion in the empire. And for the first time, Christians could publicly practice their faith without fear of death to self. But the longer that this comfortable legal religion went on, some Christians realized something. Praise God we're not getting killed anymore. Thank God our families aren't dying anymore. I'm glad to not be in prison but you know, there's something about this death thing that's central to Christianity. At the root of our religion is death to self. And so what did they do? Don't worry, I'm not about to promote some kind of weird Jim Jones death cult, so take a deep breath. There's no poison Kool-Aid. They formed monasteries. They became monks. Why? They wanted to form an intentional community and lifestyle that was built and designed on death to me. Think about that. These Christians wanted to live so radically for Jesus, they were not comfortable with being comfortable. I need to die so that I might truly live. 
And so they formed these communities in which they structured their entire lives to kill themselves, to be surrounded by the truth that they may more greatly live for King Jesus. And so they lived in community with one another. They had rigid schedules for their prayer and for their Bible reading. Their lives were built around prayer and Bible reading and worship and everything worked around that. But they were not just spiritual, they were practical. They regulated the kind of food that they ate. They were careful to not dip over into overindulgence. They regulated both their leisure and their work. They would only rest and sleep for so much. But more than that, they would work and they would make sure that their work was manual labor. They wanted to put their bodies to work and put their bodies to the test. Everything they did was intentional because the monks knew this principle. And I think it's so important for you and I today that self-indulgence in any area of our lives breeds self-indulgence in every area of our lives. And if I'm to follow the kingdom principle of death to myself and surrounding my life with the truth, I must order the spiritual and the non-spiritual sections of my life that it's all lived for the glory of God. And I think this applies to you and I today. In 2023, in the United States of America, praise God, it is legal to be a Christian. I do not want Christian persecution to come. But listen to me, it is easy to be a Christian and to be comfortable in this nation. And I don't think that those two things really work together well. And it's easy in this nation to be a Christian and to be self-indulgent. And I don't think those two things go together. And I encourage you today, would you consider adopting a rule of life that says, I know I don't have to, but I want to, that I may die to myself and live for God. So I wanna encourage you, pray and read the Bible every day, but would you set specific times to do so? Not just when it's convenient for you, set specific times. For me, it's either in the morning or in the evening. What is the point of that? Is God more present at 6 a.m.? No, he's not at all. Is it just for practical purposes so that you make sure you get the prayer done? I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the driving factor. When I say set a time for your prayer and Bible reading, what I'm suggesting is that you subordinate every other part of your life and schedule to the glory of God. That something else has to be moved around. Something else has to die so that Jesus is first place. I want to encourage you, be at church every Sunday. Thank you for being here. But for those of you who make it your regular schedule, I'm not talking about vacation. I'm not talking about a season where you're sick. I'm talking about the way you live your lives is you are here one to two Sundays a month. Would you consider being here every Sunday? Would you consider stepping foot in these doors to worship Jesus every chance that you get? Because listen to me, I know you may think I can prioritize myself over Jesus on Sunday morning, but prioritize Jesus over myself and the rest of my life, but it doesn't work that way. Self-indulgence 
breeds self-indulgence. Self-importance breeds self-importance. And if I'm going to die to myself, I better do it on all planes. But let me get more practical at what the monks did. Not only did they regulate all the spiritual things in their life, they regulated their eating and their exercise and their work and their leisure. And listen to me. Okay, so you don't think that I'm like beating y'all down. I'm preaching to myself today. So can we be real as Americans and Americans in the South who have like fried chicken and chicken and waffles and like we pour gravy on our biscuits? Would we consider regulating our diets so that we don't just eat what is convenient or what satisfies a little craving, but would we consider dying to ourselves to the glory of God? Because self-indulgence breeds self-indulgence. Would we consider regulating this thing that I am addicted to and I'll tell you I am, or Netflix, or entertainment, not just because it's bad for us, but when we binge shows, we feed that selfish desire that just says, give me what feels good in the moment. Will we consider regulating our lives? Why? Because self-indulgence breeds self-indulgence. What I'm saying to you today is this, is that a cornerstone of the kingdom is dying to yourself and surrounding yourself with the truth of God. But if our lives are so filled with what feels good and looks good and distracts me from the moment, how do we have room to say no to sin when the temptation comes and say yes to the truth of Jesus when it's presented to us? Let's reorder our lives around what truly and really matters because the truth is you and I are sinful and selfish people that just want to do what we want without the grace of God. And I believe that this is so clearly portrayed in this next little bit in the life of Barabbas. Pontius Pilate eventually goes out and he says, look, I have not found anything wrong with this guy. He has done nothing wrong. He's claimed to be a king, but he's not that kind of king. He's done nothing wrong. But you have a custom that every Passover, I should release a prisoner for you. Do you want me to release to you, here it is, the king of the Jews? Pilate gets it, partially. And what do the crowd shout back? No, absolutely not. We want you to release for us Barabbas. Now, who is Barabbas? In the New King James Version, it simply translates it as robber. But that's not really uh, accurate to who Barabbas is. Barabbas is not just a petty thief. When we look at the Christian Standard Bible, it translates it as Barabbas is an insurrectionist. In fact, when we go to Mark 15, he actually fills in the details. Barabbas is a man who gathered with an army, took a sword, and tried to fight the Roman Empire. And he murdered somebody in the process of it. And now he is on trial for attempting to overthrow the kingdom by force and setting up his own kingdom in the land. And you've got to understand, this is very common. Before Jesus' time, there were tons of messiahs. 
There were tons of Christs who rose up, who got armies, who said, we're defeating Rome and we're establishing an earthly empire. And you want to know what happened every single time? Rome sniffed them out, crushed the army, and crucified their Messiah. Every time. And here is Barabbas, an actual insurrectionist, an actual murderer, an actual man seeking to set up his own earthly kingdom with his own earthly ways. And you can see the irony. Jesus willingly goes to the cross, never hurt anyone, never sinned. And they say, crucify him and free the murderer. We want him. And on Passover... Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, is crucified in the place of sinful Barabbas. And if you don't see it yet, let me make it clear for you. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas, living my life my way on my terms, for my sin, for how I want it to go. And Jesus steps up and he dies in my place that my sins might be forgiven, that my nature might be renewed, that I might be given life so that I could step out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous and glorious light. Jesus died for you. I think about it like this. Elizabeth and I have loved this show lately called The Amazing Race. I don't know if you've seen The Amazing Race. It is incredible. It's been going on for like 30-something years. And basically, a bunch of teens get together, and they travel around the world to all these countries and cities, and then they have to complete these tasks that have to do with the culture there and do it as fast as they can, and eventually someone wins. It's awesome. And the, the latest season we watched had a team featuring Dusty and Ryan. And Ryan on that team had a very interesting story because as a young man, he was wrongfully convicted. And I'm trying to remember, but I think he spent something like 10 years of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And then he was released and his buddy Dusty, you know, stuck by him that entire time and believed him. And then they were traveling around the world. It was really cool. And he said, but one thing I want to do with my life after this experience, I want to travel around and I want to be an advocate. I want to fight for the people who were wrongfully convicted and help them in any way that I can. And as I think about the story of Ryan, it looks just a little bit like Jesus. Jesus is wrongfully convicted. He is righteous and holy. He is the king of the Jews, and he's put to death instead of Barabbas. But Jesus died on that cross, and he rose again, not to become an advocate for the wrongfully convicted, but to become an advocate for the rightfully convicted, to advocate for sinners like you and me and Barabbas, that we could say, Lord, I am a sinner 
Please forgive me. And he stands before the Father and he says, Lord, they have sinned. They have built their own kingdom. They have gone their own way. They have done their own thing. But I shed my blood for them. Don't hold it against them. And now your sins are as far away as the east is from the west. And though your sins were scarlet, they are as white as snow because they are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And you are a citizen in his kingdom and a child in his family. And so if you are a sinner today living in sin, I call you to repent. You can build your own kingdom and live life your way, but it will come falling down. And you may think that enough money or enough pleasure or the good enough position or whatever dream you've come up with will satisfy you, but it won't. And like Barabbas, you will be crushed under the foot of Satan who is manipulating you and using you to fulfill his purpose. But Jesus has an open invitation. I bid you come and die that you may live with me. And if you turn from your sins and believe in him, you will be forgiven. And if I can preach simply to the Christians in the room, I don't know if you've heard it lately. I don't know if you've heard the gospel lately. I think us Christians can be so hard on ourselves to live good lives, we forget the simple gospel. But I don't know what you've done this week. I don't know how you've sinned this week. I don't know how you fulfilled your own desires and your own ways. I don't know what has you walking into the church building with your head hanging low like this. But would you receive the comfort of the gospel today when you repent and believe in Jesus? It doesn't matter what it is that you have done. Your sins are forgiven. Church, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Church, take comfort. You are in the kingdom of God with all its rights and all of its benefits. Your sins are forgiven. Take comfort in the gospel today. So if you would, would you stand today? I'm going to ask that the, uh, the elders and the prayer team and the folks that you know who you are, would you come just stand at the front and, and be available for prayer and in just a moment, I'm going to ask um, everyone in the room to, to step down and, and to come down for prayer. I just want to give you three directives as you come down to pray. One is this. Would you ask God for strength and wisdom on how to order your life that you may die to yourself? Say, Lord, what are the areas in my life that I need to bring under subjection for your glory that I may live for you? Two, ask the Lord to strengthen you in the comfort of his forgiveness. God, help me to just get and hold on to the simple gospel. And third, if none of that matters, but you just need to be ministered to by one of these um, prayer team members, I want to invite you down to, to speak with them and to be ministered to. So if you would, church, with everybody in the room, would you step down? Would you meet with God here in these altars? And would you begin to pray and cry out to him? Come on, everybody in the room. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us Sunday mornings in person or online at 10 a.m. For more information or to watch our services online, please visit us at www.highpraises.org or check us out on social media.